Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Oh, welcome. I am so grateful that you're here today. If you're in the house, welcome. If you're joining us online, we are really grateful that you are here also. You know, at Emmanuel Faith, we are all about trying to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And sometimes that feels a little bit more downstream as in, in, as in that it's, it's a little bit easier. And then there are other times in life where it feels like it's a huge challenge to figure out what that looks like and what that means. Our passage of study today is one of those times of, of challenge. And so I just wanna at the very onset say that there are people in our church body who have differing opinions about the passage we're about to study, number one. And there are people in our church body who this is gonna be, and I don't use this term lightly, maybe a bit triggering for, that the subject matter is gonna stir up some things in you that you're gonna go, whew, this is hard to talk about. This is hard to hear. And I just want you to know that wherever you are in that spectrum of pain, you are welcome here. It was fall of 2019 when a close family member called me and said, Ryan, I, I think it's over. We've done all that we can. We've gone to counseling. We have mentors surrounding us. We have friends that are speaking into our life. And we feel like we have done everything we can in order to make this marriage work. And it doesn't work. And the collective heart of our family started to break. Because six years earlier, we had all surrounded them and prayed over them and been excited about the future that God had in sickness and in health for them together. And it was falling apart. It was the first time that divorce had hit that close to our home. And I wish I could say that our family's story is in some way unique, but the more stories I hear, the more I find out that our journey is a a reflection of many other journeys. That my guess is in a room this size with this many people, in some way, some shape, some form, your life has been touched by divorce in some way. Some of you have walked through it personally and you carry the scars to prove it. And others have had friends or have had families that have walked through the pain and peril of a marriage that didn't make it. We've had pastors on our staff who have walked through divorce. We have elders who have walked through divorce, members, regular attenders. In some way, it touches every single one of us. And we see it all around us in our culture, don't we? I mean, I think of a number of years ago when the power couple of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, who, who even had a, a couple named Brangelina, split up and they called it their conscious uncoupling as a way to diminish maybe the pain of a word like divorce. Or, or more recently, you may have heard Adele's new album, 30, where on it, she invites us into the emotional pain of walking through her divorce and doing it publicly. 
These are not new issues for humanity. Divorce is a reality that people have been wrestling with uh, maybe ever since the dawn of creation. Or to say it another way, as long as we have had marriage, we have had marriages that didn't work out for one reason or another. And because of that, it shouldn't surprise us that the scriptures speak to this issue. They speak to the pain in real everyday life. Now, I need to say at the onset that this is a very complex passage, not just in exegesis to try to figure out what in the world Paul is saying, but also in a pastoral manner to say, how do we apply this to a local community of faith in 2022? So I'm going to do my best to explain what I believe the text says, but I also want you to know that if you have been touched personally by divorce, we see you, we hold space for you, and we recognize that this is far beyond an academic study, amen? But that it touches maybe the deepest parts of your soul. With that said, if you have your Bible, would you open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In his letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul spends a good portion of the letter answering questions that the church in Corinth had asked him. So remember, Paul was a pastor there and planting pastor there for about a year and a half. He left and then things start to come off the rails a little bit in Corinth, partially because of the city that they live in. And the church writes back to Paul and says, hey, what in the world do we do in situations like this? In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, we see Paul write, now concerning matters about which you wrote, he's saying, I'm about to start answering the questions that you asked me. One of those questions was about marriage and sexuality and intimacy within marriage. Another one of those questions was about singleness and when to get married. We're going to talk about singleness in just a few weeks. And now we see that the church had asked Paul some questions about divorce that he takes head on and gives them an answer to. And as you'll see, divorce was an issue 2,000 years ago, just like it is today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Are you there? Wonderful. Here's what Paul wrote. He said this. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. Now, quick time out. Paul is citing a specific teaching of Jesus that he's about to pass on to the church in Corinth. He's saying that I've heard that Jesus taught this directly. It applies one-to-one to, one to you, and I'm about to give it to you. We'll talk about what teaching of Jesus that is in just a moment. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now notice that Paul addresses both men and women in the marriage covenant. And he uses two different words to talk about their interaction when their marriage starts to fall apart. For the wife, he talks about the wife not what? Separating. And for the husband, he talks about the husband not divorcing his spouse. Now, most scholars think that this was, he used this language because in the Roman culture, the only recourse a woman had to leave a marriage was to simply leave. They didn't have the ability to actually get divorced. 
And so what Paul's doing is he's using these words, separate, divorce, and leave interchangeably throughout this text. We'll see them pop up time and time again. They mean the same thing. But what Paul's doing is he's leveling the playing field. He's saying this doesn't just apply for men. It actually applies for women too. And what he's doing is he's raising the value of women in that culture. It was a patriarchal culture. And Paul is bringing out a sense of equity that men and women have within the marriage covenant. And to do so would have meant that Paul would have been canceled by many in his cultural moment. Okay, we just need to know that so we can appreciate what Paul's doing. But he's writing in response to a question they had about divorce. And you need to know that in the Corinthian culture, divorce was prominent. It was was simple to get a divorce in Corinth. He would just simply leave the house. And it was like a common law divorce. Bye, Felicia, I'm out, we're done. And that was the end of it. And so when Paul starts to write, he's writing into that culture, so much so that the Roman historian Seneca put it like this. So this wasn't just a men leaving issue, it was men and women leaving. And Seneca wrote, they mark the years not by changing their calendars, but by the acquisition of a new husband. Wow. So this was happening quite widely in Corinth at the time. It reminds me of a billboard that a Chicago lawyer put up that said simply, life's short, get a divorce. The implication is that staying married is boring, divorce is no big deal, just go for it. It was the ethos of Corinth at the time when Paul is writing this letter. And Paul's challenge, please hear me on this, Paul's challenge in these first two verses is to every single person, not just believer, but every single person, not to treat divorce with such flippancy and to treat it with the sacredness that it was designed, that marriage was designed for. So he challenged the church not to take it as the end when somebody walked out but to continue to fight for a marriage, to not let it go so easily, to pursue reconciliation, to do the hard work of loving, even when it's not reciprocated. That was Paul's challenge. So with that in mind, how should we read Paul's instruction? The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. It seems so definitive, doesn't it? Like, don't ever do that. And yet we know that it's not a definitive command. Here's how we know. Because the Old Testament made provision for divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. We know that when Jesus was questioned about divorce, he also made provision for divorce in certain circumstances. And so that we know that there are exceptions to the seemingly uh, a rule that Paul lays out here. I think it's better to read him as saying, don't play the easy divorce game that Corinth is playing. God designed marriage to be permanent. Therefore, you should fight to keep marriage so much as is within your power to do so. And it's against that backdrop that we need to read everything else that Paul says in this section. So while some would read this as advice specifically to believers, I take it to be more general. 
Because when Paul says, not I, but the Lord, and he says, I'm giving you a direct teaching from Jesus, I'm convinced the teaching he's passing on from Jesus is out of Mark chapter, seven, verse, or Mark chapter 10, verses seven through nine, that says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become what? Say it with me, church. One flesh. In fact, you may remember in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul already cited this passage. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man, what? Separate. How many of you have heard that at some point at a marriage ceremony in your life? Yeah, me too. That's where it comes from. And so in verses 10 through 11, Paul is painting in broad strokes about God's original good and beautiful design for marriage. That he had brought Adam and Eve together for their mutual flourishing, for their mutual joy, for their mutual pleasure. And he designed marriage to be permanent so that Adam and Eve could both be vulnerable, naked and unashamed, could be safe, and could flourish. And so Paul wants to begin this section about divorce by talking about God's original design for marriage, that God designed marriage for both permanence and prospering. He designed marriage for both permanence and prospering. And that's the ideal. That's God's design. And yet we don't live in an ideal world, do we? Come on. We don't live in an ideal world, do we? No. The world is broken. We live in the wake of the fall. Sin is all around us. And the reality is marriage can be really, really difficult and really, really challenging. You don't have to say amen to that, okay? (laughs) Two broken people trying their best to love one another. And at times, there are circumstances and decisions that are made that make this ideal nearly impossible to live out. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. God always meets us where we are, not where we should be. God always meets us where we are, not where we should be. So he doesn't say to us, that's the ideal, and you can't meet that? Oh, well, sorry. No, he comes to us exactly where we are. He takes us by the hand, and he begins to move us forward. We see this in the way that the Israelites longed for a king. God said, that's not my design. That's not my plan. And they went, we really want one. And he goes, I'll give you one. It's the best that I can give you in the circumstances. And he gave him a king, even though it wasn't his design or desire. We see this in the way that God gave the Israelites a sacrificial system. We read back through the prophets and we hear God saying, I never wanted you to do sacrifice. It's not about that. It's about your heart. But it was the best that I could give you in the circumstances that you were in. And at times, that's the way God grants divorce as well. It's the best that he can give given the circumstances of some marriages and some lives. It's never his design, but at times it's the best that he can give. And so the question becomes, how, how do we find God's best in the midst of our brokenness? How do we find God's best in the midst of our brokenness? 
Because sometimes, you guys, sometimes the ideal is unattainable. And so when that's the case, what does God do? Does he look back at us and go, jump higher, come on. Hey, here's the bar, here's how high you're jumping. Come on, you gotta jump higher, you gotta do it. Does he write us off? Does he play the, sort of the, give us the cold shoulder? Well, if you can't do that, then I don't want anything to do with you. How do we find God's best in the midst of our brokenness and our hurt and our pain? I would suggest to you that that is what the rest of this passage is all about. Verse 12. There's two things that really stand out to me about how we find God's best in the midst of our brokenness. Here's how Paul continued. He said, to the rest I say. Now, now, I think the right question to ask is, who are the, who are the rest? Great question. I'm so glad you asked that. And Paul's going to narrow it down for us. It's going to be the specific people who asked the question, and the question is going to become clear in just a moment that they're wrestling with. And he says, not I, or I, not the Lord. Which, look back at verse 10. At verse 10, he said, the Lord, not I. In verse 10, he was saying, this is a teaching that I've heard Jesus gave, and I am just relaying it on to you. But here in verse 12, he's saying, I didn't hear Jesus talk about this specific issue. I don't know exactly what Jesus would have said in this specific issue, but I'm going to do my best to apply the principles in a pastoral manner to Corinth so that you can move forward and so that you can flourish. That's what he's saying. And he goes on and he writes that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So what's Paul's teaching? He's answering the question, what happens, Paul, when one person in the marriage becomes a follower of Jesus and the other doesn't? Does that give the Jesus follower the right to leave them? And Paul says, no, 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 no. Stay with them. The fact that you became a follower of Jesus and they did not is not grounds for divorce. Stay married if they are willing to stay married to you. And then he continues and he gives at least one reason to consider that. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Now, everybody look up at me for just a moment. <laughs> this is one of the most challenging verses in the New Testament to interpret, okay? Because there's things that it seems like Paul's saying, and as we look at other passages, we go, listen, I'm not sure how that lines up with what the rest of the New Testament teaches about how somebody's made holy. First, let me point out that Paul pleads with those who are married to consider the children and their well-being and their safety and their good, which would have been anathema in this culture. It would have been crazy. They would never have considered the thoughts, feelings, and well-being of children. So Paul, once again, is subversively pushing back against the culture. 
But evidently some within the church were arguing that their unbelieving spouse should be either shut out of the fellowship altogether or that as a believer, they should not have intimate relations with their, uh, with their unbelieving spouse because it might taint them. And lest we start to sort of cast stones and go, well, how archaic or how how messed up is that? Don't forget that in chapter six, Paul said, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And he said, when you go sleep with a prostitute, you bring Jesus with you and he doesn't like that. And so the church at Corinth is going, well, does that apply to a marriage when the spouse isn't a believer? And Paul says, no, it doesn't apply in situations like that. In fact, what happens in a marriage where one person isn't a believer and the other is, is that you have a a holiness that is started to be passed down from the believer to the unbeliever. It's a reversal of the way that holiness worked in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament... When something that was clean came in contact with something that was unclean, the clean became what? Unclean, right? But Jesus begins to reverse all of this. I remember there's a a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus is walking through town. She reaches out. She touches Jesus's coat. She is unclean. And when she touches Jesus's cloak, she becomes what? Clean, healed. What happened to Jesus? Oh, he's just fine. He's Jesus. The direction and the flow of holiness is reversed. Where things that are unclean become clean as they, become in con- as they come in contact with that which is clean. And Paul insisted that things work similarly in marriage where the lack of faith of one partner was not reason for divorce unless they insisted on it. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, what in the world do we make of this one person is made holy through another? I mean, if that means that they come into a saving relationship with Jesus by proxy, our soteriology is thrown into shambles. See, see we believe that we are only saved by grace through faith. That, that's the only way. Not when we come in contact with somebody who's a believer, but when we trust Jesus for ourselves. Amen? And it's good practice to always interpret less clear passages in light of more clear passages. I think Dr. Craig Blomberg, who's one of the preeminent Greek scholars alive today, captured it beautifully when he said, sanctified and holy cannot mean saved, as verse 16 proves. Rather, they refer to the moral and spiritual impact of the life of the believer on the rest of the family, making those other family members set apart in a special special place as God's object of devotion. Paul is saying there's a unique way that grace flows through a believing spouse to an unbelieving spouse. So his encouragement, his encouragement is consider your influence, not just your preference. When it comes to issues of divorce, consider your influence. How might God use you rather than just 
your preference. We cannot make decisions simply based on what makes us happy. We need to consider more variables than that. Mainly, how can I be a life-giving influence to those around me? And Paul is challenging followers of Jesus to envision the way that their example and devotion to Jesus might just impact their unbelieving spouse. So let me say it like this. Love lived out is the most powerful force in the entire universe. It's the reason that Jesus gathered his disciples around him and said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will what? They'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And if this applies in the most general of ways, it also applies in the most intimate of ways, specifically in a marriage. So Paul was teaching the believers in Corinth that their spouse being an unbeliever is not a valid reason for divorce. And and then now he starts to write about times when you just simply can't make marriage work. He starts to address that painful part where you've tried your hardest and you just can't make it work. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. If the unbelieving partner does not want to continue to live with the believing husband or wife, they are free to move forward. He or she is not enslaved. They're not bound to remain married. They're not prevented from getting remarried. Now, this instruction is given specifically to those who are married to an unbeliever because of what was going on in Corinth. I love the way that Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, put it when he wrote about husbands being angry with their Christian wives because they wanted to kiss martyrs' bonds, embrace Christians. So at at worship services, they were giving each other brotherly kisses, right? And spouses were going, not sure I'm comfortable with that. And then finally, they wanted to go visit the poor and give alms to the poor. So here's what Tertullian's saying, that these followers of Jesus, their lives were genuinely starting to reflect the way of Jesus and their unbelieving spouse was going, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that. I'm not sure that I can go with you there. And so notice that in situations like this, Paul's admonition is twofold. Number one, he says, if your spouse insists on leaving, let it be so. And you have to know that underneath these words is a mountain of pain, an ocean of tears, a deep sense of sorrow, and probably a ton of wounds. But he says, if they insist, let it be. Let it be so. If you have fought as much as you can to make it work and the other person insists on leaving, let it be so. There is a time to stop fighting to make it work. And I know some of you have been there. Second thing he says, God has called you to what? Say it with me. Peace. 
This is such a beautiful wine. In the midst of the let it be pain, peace is possible. Peace is possible. Meaning that divorce is not the end of your life. There's life after divorce. You can choose to live in peace. You can move forward. You don't need to get revenge. You don't need to hold a grudge. You are not trapped. There is life after divorce. And I believe that that's a word for somebody in the room today. And here's the principle that Paul is pointing out. Remember, his first principle was consider your influence, not just your preference. His second principle is realize that you can't control people. If they insist on leaving, there's nothing you can do about that. But you can choose peace. Peace is always within your grasp because it is a gift from Jesus himself. So the natural question becomes, Paul, you're writing to a specific group of people, believers who are married to unbelievers. What about believers that are married to believers? What about unbelievers that are married to unbelievers? I mean, how wide does the application of this principle go? I think it's a mistake to assume that this only applies if the spouse that separates is an unbeliever. See, Paul does not claim that this doesn't apply to believers. He just simply says that it applies to an unbelieving spouse leaving. Dr. Blomberg put it like this. He said, it's probably best to apply this equally to the desertion of a believer also. And I think he's right. The principle set forth is that you should do whatever is within your power to make marriage work. But if your partner insists on leaving, you don't need to stay married to them. Let it be and live at peace. But I think this brings up an even bigger issue. As we noted earlier, Paul was referencing Jesus' teaching on divorce, which, by the way, the only time uh, Jesus actually taught on marriage, it was in the context of him addressing questions about divorce, which is fascinating. But Paul referenced Jesus' teaching on marriage earlier. And Jesus' teaching seemed to be pretty absolute, seemed to be pretty narrow, and the permission he would give for a couple to seek a divorce. Listen to what he said. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, like there's only one reason, except for sexual immorality, which by the way is the Greek word porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. So many have taken Jesus' teaching to be, this is the only reason ever that the church should approve of divorce. And certainly, if you read Jesus' teaching as black and white, I think you should read it that way. Here's the problem with reading it that way. Paul didn't. How do I know that? Well, he added to Jesus' only reason. And he said, oh, well, there is another reason. If your unbelieving spouse leaves you, then you can also divorce. 
So here's the question. Do Paul and Jesus conflict with each other? Does 1 Corinthians chapter 7 conflict with Matthew chapter 19? How should we read these two passages in conversation with one another? Once again, I think Dr. Blomberg does a wonderful job of summarizing it when he says, Paul cannot have interpreted Jesus' pronouncements, right here, on divorce and remarriage as intending to cover every possible scenario, or he could not have felt free to add a second exception. So he's going, Paul didn't read it that way. And maybe it would be unwise for us to read it that way also. See, what Blomberg and others suggest is that the scriptures never intend to give a complete, comprehensive list of reasons for divorce. And I would agree. But I think it would benefit us to ask the question, what does porneia or sexual immorality and desertion, the addition that Paul makes to Jesus' one and only reason, What do those two reasons have in common? Well, I would argue that both porneia and desertion effectively dissolve a marriage before a legal divorce has occurred. The covenant of marriage is broken. And I'd argue that divorce is permitted. It's not a necessity, but it's permitted in instances other than these two explicitly stated in scripture when the marriage covenant is broken. When the marriage is already destroyed, divorce does nothing but acknowledge the legally what has already occurred. All right, so deep breath. If we don't interpret it that way, here's what we're left with. And this is my, I just pastorally, I I wanna impart to us today. If we don't interpret it that way, we have no permission or grounds to say to somebody whose spouse is gambling away all of their family's money and absolutely gutting their family, we have no grounds to say, you could leave them. We have no grounds to say if somebody is mentally unstable and have lost it, no grounds to say you could leave. If someone's addicted to drugs or alcohol and making life untenable, it's not one of the two. So we wouldn't have any grounds to say that they could leave. If someone's addicted to pornography and destroying their family because of it, no grounds to say that we could leave. If someone, and please hear me on this, if someone's being physically, emotionally, or psychologically abused, and there's only two reasons, adultery and desertion, and that doesn't fall within them. Then the church says, sorry, you've got to stay. And that's heartbreaking. And I believe it's pastoral malpractice. And I know that it's hurt a lot of people. And I know some of them are in this room. But because of the way that Paul applies the teachings of Jesus in Corinth, I believe it gives us freedom to wrestle with what Jesus taught and to apply it to local bodies today. So your question might be, what about remarriage? 
Remarriage was permitted in both Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures and instances of divorce. And you may go, well, hey, Paulson, uh, Paul pretty clearly says you shouldn't get remarried. In fact, um, he said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, but if she does, if she separates, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And I would say, yes, absolutely. And right after they, that, he said, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But we know that the Bible makes provision in certain instances for a divorce to take place. So we know that Paul was not speaking in broad strokes and generalities that were to be applied uniquely for all time. He's addressing a specific issue that's going on in Corinth at the time. I love the way that Dr. Mark Strauss put it when he wrote, Paul certainly told his Corinthian readers to remain single after their divorce in hopes of reconciliation. This is always best as long as reconciliation is a possibility. But Paul is not establishing universal laws of marriage and divorce. He's addressing specific issues at Corinth. And anybody in the first century Roman Empire reading this phrase would have thought immediately for the wor- of the wording that would fall at the end of every Jewish and Roman divorce certificate, which would have said, you are free to marry anyone you wish. And I believe Paul would have added to that in the Lord, which he does in verse 39. And so okay, will you guys just look up at me for just a moment? I know I know that this is a painful topic and a painful conversation for many. And I also know that there are those in this room, there are those watching online, and you are living in the wake of guilt and shame over a divorce that you walked through maybe years and years and years ago. And in your mind, or maybe you've been told that the grace of God applies to everything else except for that. And I want you to hear me on this as clearly as I can say it. You are not condemned. You're under the blood of Jesus if you're a follower of his. You are not blackballed. There is no scarlet letter here. You are not prevented from serving Jesus. Listen, listen. If God can use a man like David, who was a murderer, an adulterer, and a polygamist, and call him a man after his own heart, then certainly there is life on the other side of divorce. I believe that he wants to bring you freedom and life and joy today, and that living under the guilt and shame of the enemy's voice is no way to flourish, is no way to flourish. The final verse. It might be the most widely debated in the whole thing. And um, if you've been awake for the last 37 minutes, you know, um, that's saying something, right? For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And I've always read this and thought that it was another admonition to stay. Like, how do you know? How do you know what could happen? And if you do that, you have to attach it to verses 12 through 14, which was the admonition to stay. But if you read it connected to the most recent thing Paul said, which by the way is probably the best way to read it, (laughs) then it's actually connected to permission in certain instances to leave 
And so you might read it not positively, like, who knows? They might come to faith in Jesus. And you would actually read it more pessimistically, who knows? They might come to faith, but they probably won't. It's as if Paul is saying, your hope of converting him or her is coming at great personal cost to you, and it's hypothetical at best. The reading is connected directly, I believe, to verse 15, rather than verses 12 through 14. While we can and do have influence, we've already talked about that. God is the one who saves. And let's never assume that's our role. Let's let God be God, even in our marriages. All right, just one more deep breath. So a lot going on, a lot going on. I wanna give you three pieces of encouragement as we close our time today. Number one, I wanna challenge you to look for reasons to stay or strength to stay, not for reasons to leave specifically in a marriage. My guess is that in every single marriage, there comes a moment where you're not getting your needs met, where you've been wounded deeply. And when you think to yourself, it would be easier not to be married. And I would say that that's true even in the most healthy, vibrant marriages in this room. They have all come to a fork in the road where they had to decide we are committed to each other through sickness and in health, in plenty and in want. And so my challenge to you is not to give in to the enemy's voice, but as it's within your power to say, I'm gonna stay and I'm gonna love to do it, to do it. And that would include repenting of sin, That would include offering forgiveness when you've been wronged. It would include holding your life before God to say, search me and know me. Look for strength to say, not reasons to leave. Second, I wanna challenge you to trust that God's grace is sufficient for you. It always is and it always has been, even in situations of divorce. I want you to know if you're walking through divorce right now, Jesus is with you. His grace is sufficient for you. His mercy is new for you this morning. He wants to meet you where you are, not where you should be. And he meets you with a future and a hope, not with condemnation and a cold shoulder. And then finally, I want you to know that as a church, we are here to walk with you. Not just when life's awesome and when you're celebrating. Hey, listen, we wanna stand on the mountaintop with you too. But when you feel like you're in the valley of the shadow of death and when the world is crumbling beneath you, please hear me on this. You don't need to go somewhere else to find hope and to find healing and to find life. The gospel wants to speak a good word over you. We wanna walk with you in grace and mercy and truth. And we wanna point you to the God who says, I love you even when. 
And to that end, we have a divorce care class that meets every single Wednesday night. You can find information about that online or in the connection card. We would love the chance to contact you and to walk with you. But above all, I want you to know God sees you. We are here for you and his grace is sufficient for you. Amen. So I really am a pastor and I told you I had three closing encouragements and I have one more point that I wanna make. I want you to trust that God will meet you in the brokenness and lead you to his best. So let's pray. So Jesus, in a subject matter like this, that's filled with so much hurt and so much pain. We would just invite you spirit to come in a unique way, minister to our hearts, minister to our souls. Help us minister well to one another. God, I pray for the people in this room who have sort of carried around that proverbial scarlet letter of divorce and they felt like they've worn it. Lord, I pray for freedom. Ah, that your grace would wash them clean. Lord, as a church, I pray that you would help us to be a place where Marriages are strengthened where people are built up, where resources are given and where people can find restoration and hope. And Father, where for whatever reason, that's not a possibility. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of church that would walk with people well through the dark night of the soul and through brokenness. Lord, that's the way you walk with us. That's the way you meet us, not where we should be, but where we actually are. That's the way you've met people throughout all time. You're you're the same God today as you were then. And I trust that that's how you're gonna meet us this morning as well, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.